0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefense of Plants Podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because this conversation was one of the most inspiring and exciting conversations I've had in a very long time. And best of all, it involves one of my favorite genera of plants ever, the genus calycanthus many of you in eastern north america might know them as sweet shrub carolina allspice they go by a bunch of names they've imparted themselves on the cultures of many people in the southeast but they are fascinating from an ecological and evolutionary standpoint and joining us to talk about that is katie horton Katie is a wonderful storyteller and has been bitten by the botany bug since the early days, and she's following her passions wherever they take her. And as you're going to hear, they're taking her down some fascinating scientific roads. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Katie Horton. I hope you enjoy. All right, Katie Horton, it is really exciting to have you on the podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you today, but first, how about you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
1: Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Right now, I'm a grad student at the University of Missouri. Uh, I'm getting my PhD in plant stress biology, but I did a lot of work in my undergrad uh, with Dr. Tom Diggs at the University of North Georgia, just doing general botany and field work. And uh, that's, I think, where my heart really lies, is in the southeastern United States. Um, I did some field work for Alabama Power, you know, just getting out there in the woods.
0: Nice. And what got you interested in being out in the woods and specifically with plants in the first place? I mean, was this something you've always had with you or did, you know, something happen in undergrad or some sort of internship or something like that really get you excited about plants?
1: Oh, man, this has been an obsession from the very earliest st- stages of my life. Nice. I I was always outside in the woods. I grew up in uh just the this middle of nowhere part of northeast Georgia and it's I know everybody feels like where they grew up is the, the absolute godsend most beautiful place on earth the most special land but um I still think that it's uh right where the Appalachians meet the Piedmont. And so growing up I got to see this really cool intersection of ecotones, ecosystems, like just this huge meeting point. And I carried that with me into my undergrad, met my advisor, Tom Diggs, who is as into it as I am, if not more. And (laughs) we just kind of fed off of each other uh, in a feedback loop until here I am.
0: Nice. It's actually a rare occurrence when I talk to someone that's kind of known what their trajectory is going to be. From early days, and especially someone that kind of embraced their local flora in a sense of realizing just how special they are, and and you know uniquely positioned on this continent to capture a lot of diversity that you generally don't get in a lot of other places. That's that's really special.
1: Yeah, I feel very fortunate, uh, and you know, I easily could have gone the other direction. It's <laughs> it's hard to find a mentor that's like really willing to do the deep dives. Mm. It's mentorship is everything.
0: I completely agree. I mean, I was shaped heavily by my mentors that just kind of nudged me, I guess, in in specific directions, or at least unlocked some doors that I could peek into. But you know, there's so many different ways you could take this. And it kind of sounds like plants really were the lens that allowed you to appreciate the bigger picture around you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They're like my comfort zone, if that makes (laughs) sense. Uh, Now that I'm in Missouri, it's It's a totally different world and it's not, you know, bad or anything, but I'm like, I want to go back to the Appalachians. (laughs) I miss my home.
0: (laughs) Uh, As someone that's worked and and lived for good portions in Southern Appalachia, there's no other place in the world that can quite capture that amazingness. Uh, I I guess I'm speaking to the choir in that regard, but... (laughs) I mean, Missouri does have its own treats, don't get me wrong. The glade communities, the, the tall grass prairie communities are, are truly special. But yeah, I feel you. I guess is what I'm trying absolutely,
1: to get at. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And so it's <laughs> obvious you really love nature and plants, of course, is your comfort zone. But how did you start focusing in, I guess? Because when it comes to research, it's hard to say, I'm going to do it all. It, in fact, <laughs> it's impossible, especially when you're trying to go to grad school. So where did you start kind of honing in uh, on, on specifics?
1: So I actually, (laughs) I have kind of a scattered range of interests um, and it's, you know, you're right. It's not great for grad school, but (laughs) the way I got into the stuff that I was doing in my undergrad is I came in to school with notebooks that I had all these leaves stuffed in my binders and like, I wanted to get started working on the herbarium at UNG, which didn't exist before I was there. It was just like 30 years of piled up, uh, specimens collected from botany classes and uh I brought in this really weird looking uh dried up pod husk thing one day and I was like what is this I found it outside I've never seen it before which I had seen it before I just never you know sometimes your eyes are open sure and that actually ended up being the the fruit from calicanthus floridus huh. uh Carolina Allspice, Sweet Shrub, Sweet Bobby Bush. It's got a um, million and one names. <laughs> but once I learned that, I was like <laughs> like any good nerd. I was sitting down with <laughs> Weekly's Flora and, you know, just flipping through it like you do. And I saw that there was another species in Calicanthus listed on the East Coast. And it was from these like two or three counties surrounding where I had grown up. Huh. Um, I was actually living where it was supposed to be and I'd been to this one location where it was supposed to be so many times and that's Calicampus brachiana or um the paper th- that it's described in actually calls it brachianus but it's goes back and forth on the internet about which one is is proper but I'm going to use <laughs> brachiana but cool. that that's the one and hmm. it's listed as being just super uncommon rare even and I was like I can't believe I've never seen this I'm usually pretty good at like recognizing a different thing from something I've already seen. And so with Dr. Diggs, with Tom's help, I got to looking and we couldn't find it. And we couldn't find it. We spent probably two years looking for this plant and we could not find it anywhere. So that's what started me on my undergrad research trajectory. It was kind of this, this snipe hunt, if you will, this ghost (laughs) story that I was hunting down in the Appalachians.
0: Wow. That is I never expected, you know, reading your work, I never expected that to be the lead up to how you got thrown into this. you know, you hear about it. You're like, okay, I want to do taxonomy. I want to do botany. Uh, okay. This advisor has a project. They're working on this family. But to have that curiosity really kind of be the train that took you to this destination, that is fantastic. I can't tell you how <laughs> exciting that is to hear.
1: <laughs> um, it's. I, I feel a little bit... uh more fortunate than normal to be in this position because when I approached Tom, he didn't have a lab set up yet. It huh. was I was one of his first two grad student or undergrad students, sorry, to do research with him, and so he was like, "Okay, well, what's interesting? Let's just go with it." And so I spent the next uh, three or four years trying to find this plant. We eventually found it at Highlands Biological Station, um, yeah. but we. Did not find it in the wild again. And this oh. is, I'm going to tell this to you like it's a ghost story because it's better that way. <laughs>
0: okay, do it.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> so we hear rumors of this green flowered calicanthus. Uh, most of them are red, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody kind of knows them as this like kind of sweet strawberry smelling plant, or maybe it's like a little bit trashy, like sweet garbage. I like fermented. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. A, a favorable way to put it. Um <laughs> So we've seen, like, there's a cultivar that was developed by Dr. Durr at UGA, and it's called Athens, and it's fully green-flowered. But this Calicanthus brachiana was supposed to be kind of like a a less green green, if that makes sense, like an intermediate. um, (laughs) And they did have one like that at the Highlands Biological Station. So we followed that trail up. Um, they were gracious enough to give us a plant. They were like, let us know what you find out. We we just found this tag on the ground under the leaves. We don't even that... know if it's the right plant. Wow. And we found the type specimen stored at UGA. And we came to find out that the plant had been named after a professor at the other campus of university of north georgia than the one that i was going to oh. and then we contacted her to see if she knew anything about it and she didn't even know that she had a plant named <laughs> after <laughs> what a way to find out oh my god I know. so we drove around to all of the locations this plant was supposed to be and we couldn't find it anywhere but we did find that calicanthus floridus is pretty variable it's huh. like Sometimes you find it and it's really furry. And I think right now, Weeklies flora only recognizes the one species, but some places recognize uh, two maybe hmm. on the East Coast, not including Brachiana. But when you really dive into it, all of these East Coast calicanthus are super variable and they're not variable on the West Coast. Hmm. This being such an ancient plant, it's it kind of was like, just turning the gears in my head like we found some that have dentate leaves when they're not supposed to we found some that stay short on the top of a mountain with the help of uh james van horn we found some that get really tall but never produce any fruits and so we're thinking okay there's some maybe like genome duplication going on in here Hmm. and we really wanted to dig down and do morphological stuff and genetic stuff. We wanted to figure out if this was something that we could pursue further with like the big guns, you know, <laughs> like maybe we could uh, scrape some funds together to do a whole genome sequence. Whoa. I know <laughs> we never did, <laughs> but that's still, still on my wish list. <laughs> dream
0: big. <laughs> yeah,
1: we were able to get a sample of the type specimen from UGA after years of, of plaintive begging. And when we finally got everything together, we still hadn't found the plant again in the wild, but we had all these DNA samples that I'd collected from across the mm. Southeastern United States. And we sent them off to be sequenced. We were gonna do chloroplast and nuclear, just a really short but sweet thing to tell us if this is any different. And of course the type specimen is old donated in 1987. Oh geez. So the DNA extraction was kind of um <laughs> it's kind of kind of sketchy there for a little bit. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, we finally got everything sent off right when the pandemic hit.
0: Oh that thing that happened?
1: <laughs> yeah, that thing.
0: Oh boy. That, that blip. Wow well, yeah.
1: Yeah. And we found out that the the package with all of these samples in it had been opened uh, on its way to GeneWiz and the PCR plates were destroyed and then they were put back in the package. And GeneWiz did everything they could to try and help us. And so we have some partial, <laughs> I know, <laughs> we have some partial fragments of DNA that seem to, <laughs> that are, they're seeming to tell us that uh, there are groups of calicanthus floridus Specifically there's a large group in Alabama but I don't know more than that because wow. it's a very short region of DNA. This is a very haunted project. <laughs> oh
0: my god. Now mind you the undercurrent here is you're doing this as an undergrad, right? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay, first off, round of applause uh truly dedicated <laughs> to your craft and your passion. That is incredible to tackle that. And when most are just trying to get by, get their credits and party a bit, (laughs) my hat is off to you. Uh, You're going to have a bright future in science. That is amazing. (laughs) Second, you found a species that for once weekly isn't splitting into a hundred different micro species. That's incredible. Um, But to recognize that across its range... Something weird is going on. I mean, just to see that kind of diversity. You also have this tale of going to a botanical garden, not a big one. I love highlands; they're not big, but to have the story of of a living collection that could provide some insight. I mean, there's so much to this that someone needs to write a book about your story or make a movie out of it. I mean, this is it's so (laughs) rare you get this in Botany. So. Amazing what you've been able to bite off here. But you said something I kind of want to back up before we kind of get into more depth on this, is you said it's an ancient plant. I mean, what makes this plant, this genus, and this family so special in that regard?
1: I love this question. So (laughs) 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 uh, Calycanthaceae is, and I hope I've got this right, is is a Cretaceous family, Mm -hmm. more or less. It's pan-global. So we have Mm -hmm. Uh, only a couple of extant species. We have Idiospermum australiense, which is kind of basal to the, the rest of the family, and it's in Australia. <laughs> there aren't very many left. Uh, the only group that I know of are in the Dane tree rainforest. And it's this huge tree, and it has these gigantic seeds, wow. and they are very toxic. Um sweet. <laughs> yeah, right? It's one of those plants that you look at it and you're like, what used to eat this? Why is it so toxic?
0: <laughs> Harkens so, to some ancient time long gone. Yeah. Nice.
1: So then you have fossils from the Cretaceous in South America. And there aren't any extant species in South America as far as we know. Hmm. But then we have the um and calicanthus sinensis or cynocalicanthus sinensis Ooh. in China. Chimonanthus is is kind of a big genus. We don't get that kind of diversity with the type genus Calicanthus. And then in North America, we have Calicanthus occidentalis on the west coast and Calicanthus floridus on the east coast. And so it's kind of easy to see or to imagine, I guess, how this group was once spread out across the entire continent of Pangea or something like that. It really has... Spread and then had a, a kind of a recession.
0: Hmm. We're on the tail end of its heyday, I guess. Yeah, in in modern terms.
1: <laughs> and it's it's a basal dicot, so it's not a basal angiosperm. It's kind of one of those awkward middle siblings, like uh, <laughs> your buttercups and things like that. Sure. It still has its. It doesn't have petals. It has sepals that are colored to look like petals, which are called tepals. For okay. anybody who doesn't know. It smells like rotting fruit or fermented <laughs> fruit, as we talked about, which is anytime you smell something that's kind of fermented and it's a flower, you got to think like beetles, flies, mm. which are pollinators that evolved far before butterflies did as far as, or, or birds or any of our other charismatic pollinators, <laughs> you might <Heck> say.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and it's uh, it's got its tepals in whirls. Instead of in the regular like kind of flat floral plane that you think of, like a magnolia mm. would, but it's not quite that far back. It's it's in the same group as like your bay leaves that you would use for cooking.
0: Okay, okay.
1: So this is a plant that spreads by root and also by seed. It can fertilize itself or it can outcross. It can double its genome to provide maybe some greater fitness or it cannot depending on what it feels like. It can cross between sister species or it can not. Um, A lot of the cultivars that are in the market right now are crosses between the Chinese one and the West Coast one, but there are some native bars available. And it's special because not only does it show us how plants progressed across the world, it also shows us how they changed on their way to do so. One of my favorite examples of this is that the West Coast species, Calicanthus occidentalis, has its, its fruits are held at kind of like an upright 90 degree angle. And the ending of them, that would be the bottom on any other species, the ending of them is open. It's this large open hole. And when the fruits mature, they're these dried packages, kind of It doesn't have any like specific term, but kind of think of a fig if the fig were dry and the seeds were large or a (laughs) strawberry if you turned it inside out and it was dry. That's a good image. Yeah. Thank you.
0: (laughs) It qualifies.
1: (laughs) So the individual fruits are inside. They're dry. They're achines. um, And on the West Coast, they have an eleazome on them. And eleazomes... Uh, Yeah, they're little fatty, protein-rich bodies that insects will hang on to and carry the seed off. You see this a lot with trillium and stuff like that. But the eleosomes on the West Coast are for wasps, as far as we can tell. No Yeah. (laughs) They call them meat-eater wasps, I think. And the wasps come into the end and they pick up one of these gigantic seeds that's as big as the wasp and they fly them off. Yeah. Oh, And then (laughs) here on the East Coast, we don't we'd have to set up a trail cam nobody's nobody's done a deep dive onto what distributes these seeds but what you'll see commonly are those same leathery looking dried out fruits hanging down and there is no hole in the bottom of them and you'll see them persisting on the plant through winter into like maybe around may hmm. and either you'll see them all closed up or you'll see them chewed open. Yeah. And what we're thinking is happening is an arboreal mouse comes along and stuffs all those little seeds in its cheeks. Cause there is no eleosome on this one. <laughs> and then it runs off and buries them somewhere, hides them. And that's how the seeds get distributed.
0: Wow. wow. That is so rad. You just, I thought I liked this family, but you just <laughs> blew the lid off for me. That is so cool. And yeah, I, I, This is purely anecdotal, but I've only when I see them on the tree from last year at any of my field sites, they're always just this maud destroyed hole on the side of them. I'm always like, who got to you? Yeah. (laughs) That is. And what's wild,
1: they're toxic. They're full of calicanthine, which has strychnine like action. So mammals don't eat these. (laughs) So something, some maybe a mammal probably a mammal yeah. has evolved since these plants were ancient that like think of it as it's got a brand new seed distributor it had an old one and then that one probably died and now it's got a new one dang just mind blown wow. about how versatile these are
0: Whew. yeah uh never looking at a calycanthus the same way again thank you that is so incredible and i mean here's a plant that's got this evolutionary history, the story to tell about deep time, continental movements, animals evolving, going extinct relationships that span the gamut of ancient and modern. But then you mentioned earlier in the conversation, just the sheer amount of names one species can have. So has definitely imparted itself on the human psyche in a big way. I mean, it's got value as a horticultural species. It's got value as sort of the cultural storytelling of a region. I mean, you hear some pretty awesome, colorful stories about this bush in in southern Appalachia as well. I mean, it's just so freaking cool. And I, it's like the first time I saw it in bloom. I'm a northerner, so I had no experience with this group. You see the flower and you go, that is different. And the way you just described it really tells you why it is just so strange. Yeah.
1: And... So you, you've got the general picture of a, of a sweet shrub flower in your mind. Like it's got the red leathery tepals and it's got the um, opposite leaves at every node. And it's got those super signature nodes that are kind of blocky. But once you really get out there in the woods or even just walk along some of the nativars, not necessarily the cultivars, but the nativars, I have seen plants that are almost black. I've wow. seen plants that have like the, the undersides of their leaves are super, super fuzzy and almost purple. Um, the leaves are rough and leathery or they're soft and tender. They're very small or they're as big as my hand. And the flowers themselves can go from the size of the tip of my pinky finger to maybe like two, two thumb joints across Hmm. you. You never know what you're going to get. And that's why I think these Appalachian species. I mean, we know that there are pockets in the Appalachians (laughs) where there are special plants evolved. We know that the (laughs) geology does that, but I think this is one that we've been overlooking and and really sleeping on for a while because not only have, you know, Appalachian at-home gardeners been taking this plant and bringing it close to their house for years as one of the early bloomers and early, early leafing plants, but it's been hanging on to the banks of our rivers and streams mm. for ages. Cause that's where it likes to be. It likes to be in those riparian zones, a little bit mafic, just kind of keeping your bank intact. And one thing about this plant is that it is super sensitive to herbicides. Hmm. So if we end up getting a lot of, like, let's say one of the areas where I was looking for calicanthus brachiana is unfortunately now uh, three rows of chicken houses. As it goes in Northeast Georgia, Yep. but there is a regular Calacanthus floridus with red flowers across from this site and it has these telltale signs of herbicide damage, which is not quite like, you know, the, um, the virus that does the branching on certain oh, yeah. plants,
0: like the witch's broom or whatever they call yeah. it. Yeah.
1: Exactly. It's got very short internode distances. The leaves are curled on the edges and they're very small. And sometimes the blooms are a little bit more pale. Hmm. So this is another factor that's not just natural that I want to throw into the mind of people who are describing species or who are doing research on these Appalachian species. Because if, if we have counties that are doing herbicide sprays to keep the foliage back from the road. They're also hitting these plants like calacanthus that are great holders of the bank Mm. that are preventing erosion and that are saving our streams and preventing silt from getting in there. And anecdotally, these plants with the paler flowers that have herbicide damage, they have smaller seeds. Oh. So that's another question. What is the difference in nutrient for what actually does eat the seeds? So What's the difference in viability for the plant. I think a critical, <laughs> I know it's been around forever, but I think this is a critical plant to, to examine right now because of our climate change, because of our human encroachment in, in, into these wild spaces. And because it really illustrates how we don't understand even something that's been around forever. We don't understand how it interacts in all these ways with the world around us.
0: Wow, uh, beautifully put and really well spelled out. I mean, there's so many connections there that really anyone, whether you're a trout fisherman that just enjoys clean streams, clean, cool streams, or worried about why this road is going to slough off into the, and tell you, Southern Appalachia, that happens a lot. <laughs> yes. um, I mean, just so many levels here, but it just goes to show you time and time again how we have these plants that have really kind of marked themselves on our culture in a big way. And it's cool to have these stories, the cultural side of things, the human element of these things. But beyond that, the ecology, the evolutionary history of these species, some big questions that matter in a lot of different ways. We often know next to nothing about some very common species. I mean, that is such a good illustration of why we need to be out there understanding natural history, looking at what's visiting these plants, what's eating them, how they're interacting with the world around them because you know at the end of the day lore isn't going to save the ecology of a region it can get people fired up i'm not downplaying that but you need to understand how these species make their living
1: yeah and this is not the only snipe hunt in <laughs> northeast georgia let alone the Appalachians. this is not the only ghostly plant that you hear rumors of and can never quite find or you don't know the origin of or, or something like that there are tons out there and you know i i don't want to moan about funding everybody wishes they (laughs) had more money
0: (laughs) it's good to hear it though because i mean when we come down to like where are we donating what are we voting on that kind of thing i mean these are how funding gets allotted or decided in a big way
1: yeah and right now i am in a school that focuses more so on agriculture than it does on native plants of the area which is also very important we don't want to like villainize each other. We want to marry these two groups. I hear a lot of people doing research and asking questions and saying, why does this plant do this? Or how does it do this? Why does this crop plant do this? But there are maybe five, at least plants on the East coast that are wild that I can think of that use the same mechanism or that do this thing. And so if we can just broaden our interests a little bit, broaden, you know, broaden our base, unfocus a little bit and see a little bit of the broader picture, um, to know, like if you're studying nutrient uptake, uh, through the leaves, maybe you want to look at tillandsia, you know, hmm. maybe you want to check out some Spanish moss. You'd be surprised what people who are plant researchers don't know.
0: Uh, yeah. yeah the preach <laughs> in a big way. I mean, <laughs> I think the thing is, is agriculture is such a design system. So much of the diversity is bred out. We've got control over it. And these plants are oftentimes vastly different than what they looked like when they originated out of the wild. Nevertheless, there's an evolutionary history there and plants are going to survive. I mean, we're selecting for certain traits, but that doesn't remove them from the context of being a plant with an evolutionary history. So, yes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And so this 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 snipe hunt you went on. I mean, it's interesting to hear the stories you tell of just the diversity of Floridanus and how weird that plant can be across its range, and then to think of where Brachiana fits in there. And did you actually personally interact with the plant at Highlands? I mean, have you seen Brachiana as it should be? and And how does that fit into your now broader understanding of this genus?
1: Great question. So I did go to Highlands and I saw the plant there. It had a little colony around it, which you love to see, you know, it, the plant is happy and has plenty of water if it's got its its roots spread out. And it was more different than I expected it to be. Hmm. And it changed. It did change how I thought about the rest of the species or the rest of the genus. Um The flowers change color on this plant as they age. So as it gets closer to bloom time, it goes from uh, a very green bud and it turns to kind of like this tan color. Hmm. And then as the blooms age, it gets a brighter green and it's very fruity smelling. Usually that changes from year to year. So it actually, this plant is the one that introduced me to the frustration associated with where is the line between species? Oh, yeah. What percentage of differences? Huh. I can remember as a, as a very green undergrad asking that question to the man himself, Dr. Alan Weekly, where's the line? What percentage of different is enough different? And uh, the room of experienced botanists and gardeners kind of just chuckled and I was like, oh no. <laughs>
0: what have I done?
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's, it's made me rethink, you know, what we consider a species is so nebulous,
0: Mm.
1: especially in the plant world. Mm. It has pulled me so deep into the mysteries of how all of these things fit together. So I would say that before I met this plant, if you will, I was more of a, a traditional, maybe like taxonomy interested student. And then after I met this plant Maybe unexpectedly, I shifted away from that more into ecology and methylation and changes at the genetic level because something is making it look this way and there has to be a pattern. Or so I kept telling myself, the more I learn, the more I know that there may be a pattern. Maybe there isn't. Maybe I'll never know.
0: (sighs) Heavy. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. very existential it it kind of makes you wonder about your your position in the whole southeast
0: i just learn every day how insignificant i am (laughs) (laughs) no i i just there's something about your story that's really standing i mean there's a lot of things about your story just in in your experience but also the trajectory you took and how much it's obviously affected you that's it's almost like making me kind of sit back and just want to go huh, for a little bit, but obviously we're recording this, so I don't want to waste your time. <laughs> it, it, it's rare to hear these sorts of dots being connected. You're a breath of fresh air, I guess, in the in the scientific realm of things because oftentimes we get siloed, we get very focused. And for someone to go, I'm going to do some genome sequencing, figure out a phylogenetic tree, and then walk away onto the next project. But this, just as you're blowing the lid off on calycanthus for us, listening it it seems like this has really blown the lid off on some big picture ideas to you that's it's really shaping sort of the future to come right i mean that you've opened so many doors to ecology niche modeling variation within a species morphology evolution and it's all because you were curious (laughs) about this big fruit you brought it i mean how cool is that i love it i love being
1: able to pull on a string and then follow it as far as you can go Um, There is no substitute for being able to take a question that that you had and just bury yourself in it until you almost can't even see the light of day anymore. You do have to have a lifeline.
0: (laughs) Yes. Come up for air every once in a while. Yeah. And I mean, think of how much this story is not unique i mean your story is unique because it's your story but in terms of what you're asking the kinds of approaches you're taking to trying to understand diversity among plants just in the southeast how often do you think situations like this are playing out on a timescales we can't imagine and in ways we can never really fully understand i mean i love a mystery why else would you be in this field if you didn't but still i mean how frequent are these stories playing out just under our noses
1: I'd say that calicanthus is one of the more obvious ones, <laughs> at least in my opinion, because it's it's so old and so weird compared to what else is here. But probably for less obviously different plants, like maybe Silene, hmm. this could be happening over and over again constantly. <laughs> uh, the Appalachians are critically underserved as far as botanizing and recording things goes. Um, even. I know Bonab Biota of North America uh, yeah. project is is from 2013. Their data it's a little bit out of out of date, but if you look at the citations, the swath of of plants of any, I would bet any species in the Appalachians, Northeast Georgia is just left out. Weird. And it's not that the plants aren't there; it's that there's a lot of secret keeping, and there's a lot of which. I get it. I get it. I hate <laughs> poachers. I get it.
0: Right, right.
1: But if we don't know what's there, how can we know what we're missing? And the fact is that we are almost certainly missing things constantly, especially with, you know, we've got really bad invasives there. We've mm-hmm. got really bad privet, uh, or japonica, all of those classic, Kudsy's not actually that bad, <laughs> ironically, but we have all those classic invasives that are pushing plants out and getting worse day by day, and you can't stop it. Um, you can just hope that you give these plants a chance to hold on long enough that they can carve out a new space for themselves. Yeah. And we can't do that if we don't get out there and share data, share information about these plants. If we don't look and see what the differences are and maybe we can use this kind of thing to predict where we should be looking in the future you know with these exceptionally old plants or maybe with the with the newer plants you know yeah they could potentially tell us uh so we've got baceris halimifolia moving in from the coast what is it looking for in the time frame that it has noticed a change and has been moving inward what else has been changing maybe we can make use of those herbarium samples that Maybe or maybe not are good for DNA, uh, but we can still get a visual uh, or a morphological right. record from them.
0: <laughs> and, and you know, when it comes to DNA stuff, I'm a complete novice. But uh, some of my friends, the talent and the technology coming together, who knows what the next decade of genetic technology is going to be able to unlock from old samples like that. I mean, who? <laughs> yeah,
1: I can't wait. We've already had uh, recently some work done on tulip poplars, nice. which are of course another really old plant. And that I think split that genus into, or split the, the species Lyriodendron tulipifera into several species, um, especially in Florida. Ooh. And we, yeah, we, <laughs> we expect Florida to have a lot of different plants. Yeah. And we know that Alabama is really diverse and I'm excited to see what the future brings for Georgia. You know, we've got UGA there in the center of it all, but, um, I can't wait to see these smaller schools, how they continue to, to grow with ecology and, and botany and citizen science.
0: Yes, <laughs> totally. So,
1: <laughs> I use a lot of observations from iNat whenever nice. I go out and look for these plants in the spring. That being said, if you are somebody who has uploaded (laughs) Calacanthus to iNat, you check that because I may have messaged you (laughs) about access to your land.
0: I I sense you might be calling out a few people. (laughs) Uh,
1: You know. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I feel (laughs) you. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, boy, I I can hear uh, some grumbles from the non-taxonomists in the group, uh, name changes. But hey, this is all part of science, and it's cool to hear the contrast of people doing it, getting excited about it, accepting it for what it is. You just got to kind of bring the rest of the colloquialisms along with you. They'll always be kicking and screaming. But I think it's, you know, citizen science, slightly better open doors within reason. You know, we can do this in a way that's smart, that's not going to just open the door to poaching. But also... Giving credit to areas that aren't necessarily super sexy when it comes to like travel and exploration and stuff like that. I mean, I think of areas like Northern Georgia or Alabama where people kind of just go, I don't know, unless you live there, unless you've been there, these are remarkable areas that, okay, it's not the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, but most areas aren't that. So get out there, make observations. And the best part is, is you never know what value they're going to be. You might not know what it is. You might not care what it is, but someone out there will and it can be very useful.
1: Yeah. Oh man, the glades in Georgia and Alabama, there are so many glades, even tiny ones that could have these uh, relic plant species that are maybe disjunct from when they used to be spread across the glades. Mm. Um, Alabama, super cool as far as glades go. Uh, People should definitely get out there and broaden their horizons with uh, not just looking for the Smoky Mountains.
0: I've only ever heard good things, so one of these days, uh, one of these days. <laughs> so, with this in mind, I mean, you are really in it. Uh, it's obvious you are extremely passionate about it. But now you're in a grad program. So, what is this new frontier of research? What do you What are you trying to tackle?
1: Oh, I. This is a great segue into that question. The final frontier is what I'm trying to tackle. Oh, no. I want to put plants in space. Stop. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What? For real?
1: Uh, yeah, for real. Oh, what it's, a pitch. It's... That
0: is a perfect pitch. Keep that.
1: It's uh it's kind of a leap. Okay. I know.
0: Literally. But uh, way up there.
1: Well, yes, it's a very <laughs> high leap. Um, but I I want to take this plant stress biology, this ecology, this uh everything that I've learned so far, and I want to keep my native plants and my Appalachians, you know, on the side over here. And then I want to also be able to take you know, maybe a calycanthus, even, or or something easier first and, <laughs> and put it in space and watch it adapt to this location that has never had anything adapt to it from our planet wow. before. So if you think about it and this, I'm super nerd about this too. Sure. Um,
0: You're in good company.
1: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> if you think about it, having a plant or a crop, crops or plants obviously but it's a little bit different than your your wild plants so taking a plant and putting it in zero gravity or low gravity and asking it to live and produce there they do but they are sending off major alarm bells and i don't really know why nobody really knows why yet it's still an emerging field Hmm. so i'm thinking i've Been doing research on Calycanthus. That's like looking back into path, into the past, into evolution and adaptation in the past. Maybe I can look into evolution and adaptation in the future. This is basically kind of the equivalent of when (laughs) plants took their first step onto land, because this is an entirely like there's no such thing. If you had asked, if you asked a plant if it could imagine what no gravity was like, <laughs> it would not be able to.
0: That I mean, you have a thread there, a very common thread linking all aspects of your interest in research uh, career, especially. But yeah, I mean, we may not know exactly how plants are responding to gravity, but we know they do. And what happens when that equation is no that that variable is no longer in the equation? Wild questions.
1: Yeah. I definitely, I could focus myself a little bit more, but I think half of the fun is just ping-ponging back and forth <laughs> across different things that you're excited about because you learn so much and and it's it's applicable across these different fields, yeah. if you will. Yeah.
0: And if you enjoy it, you give yourself multiple sort of places to grab onto and, and kind of run to their logical conclusion, whatever that may be. And, uh, you know, in, in some ways it helps people to kind of silo and focus in and in other ways it helps people to just think broad and, and follow things to wherever they go. And, and who knows? I mean, like you said, this is truly <laughs> the final frontier. We're going to get real corny here, but th- that's <laughs> so exciting. And it's, again, very refreshing to hear someone that doesn't look at that and go, oh, God, I got to get a thesis done. I got to get ooh, deadlines. Ooh enjoy it. It's a journey. Sometimes it's a slog, but it sounds like you are ready and willing. And uh, I can't think of someone better to be at that frontier. So kudos.
1: Thank you. And I do hope when I when I graduate, <laughs> I I do hope to come back to Calicanthus and, and actually answer this question for us all. I'm working on a, a grant with mailed advisor, Tom Diggs, and we're going to try to get funding to actually do a real investigation for really reals this time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hand it to gene with ourselves, put it in their hands and I hope hope everybody is excited as we are.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've got a great story to tell and some good preliminary, you know, hypotheses and even some data to look at. So uh, I'll keep my fingers crossed for you, but just uh, show them how passionate you are and hopefully they'll just start throwing money at it. (laughs)
1: that is always the goal
0: (laughs) awesome and so with that in mind if people want to reach out learn more or just kind of keep their finger on the pulse of what you and your colleagues are up to in the research world where do you recommend they go looking
1: so anybody can always find my instagram at katie underscore plant underscore lady nice (laughs) easy to remember um and that's k-a-t-i-e and I also am, you can contact me through my email, um, katie.in.horton at gmail or katie.in.horton at mail.missouri.edu. I have a Twitter I don't really use. I haven't logged in in ages, probably not the best way, but.
0: You're not missing much, just a lot of anger. (laughs) That's what I hear. Yeah. (laughs)
1: I love hearing from people. Shoot me an
0: email. Excellent. I can save everyone the trouble and put up links. But Katie, thank you so much. I mean, you are a great storyteller. You've got really awesome ideas and the passion to back it all up. But thanks for taking the time to tell us all about this. And uh, good luck. Not that you're going to need much of it. I think you got a lot on your side, but keep kicking butt. And uh, yeah, go plants.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Of course. Well, hang in there and stay healthy, but uh, happy botanizing. (laughs) You too. Cheers. All right, that is it for this week. Wasn't that conversation incredible? Katie is such an inspiring researcher and I just can't wait to watch where her career in research takes her. I just know it's going to be awesome. I thank her for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. And of course, you can find all of the relevant links for everything we talked about in the show notes for this episode, as well as every episode I do. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. If you want to ensure that this show can continue, please consider supporting it over at Patreon. All of my patrons make this show possible each and every week. It doesn't take much, and you'll get some kickbacks in the process, but please consider supporting the show with a monthly financial contribution. Speaking of that, I have a shout-out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Ms. Holly. Ms. Holly went over and signed up at the producer credit level, so they are supporting this podcast to the maximum, and I can't thank them enough. You can also pick up a copy of my book, merch, and stickers. And of course, all of those links are also in the show notes over at indefenseplants.com podcast. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.